This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. This is the podcast where we talk to neuroscientists about what they are trying to do to understand how the brain works. But beyond just talking about their research, we also want to dive into the personal side of science to try and highlight the journey that the scientist has taken to get to where they are. Science is not a direct path to knowledge. There are struggles, failures, emotions, and inspirations along the way, and we want to explore that on this show. On today's episode, I spoke with Dr. Eric Klan, a professor of neuroscience at New York University in New York City. Dr. Klan has been interested in trying to understand how particular molecular pathways in neurons are responsible for long-lasting changes that play a role in things like learning and cognition. We know now that our brains are constantly changing based on our environment. Every new piece of information that we learn is thought to cause our brains to alter the strength of connections between neurons. But what exactly is responsible for causing these changes? The answer is an incredibly complex array of signaling pathways that exist in every single cell. If you would like to get a flavor for how intricate these pathways are, feel free to do an image search for signaling pathway with the safe search on, of course. And just admire the level of complexity that even a single pathway can have. All these pathways eventually influence the production of proteins, which is a process called translation. And Dr. Klan has been trying to understand how translation is controlled in a normal, healthy state, as well as in altered states, which can help us understand disorders such as autism, Alzheimer's disease, and many others. So, let's get to the interview. Professor in the Center for Neuroscience at New York University. That's the Washington Square campus. And our primary interest is understanding mechanisms of translational control in neurons, how translational control is involved in long-lasting plasticity and various types of memory, so consolidation, reconsolidation, and extinction. And then we're also interested in how translational control mechanisms are altered in brain disorders, primarily neurodevelopmental disorders um, that are associated with intellectual disability and autism and also uh, neurodegenerative disorders. Okay, can we use that as an entryway? Let's start with some of the disorders that you're interested in studying, and can you tie that into how does translation in brain cells, How, how are the, where's the link between those two? Yeah, so we uh, have studied 
mTORC1 signaling. This is um, now called mechanistic targeted rapamycin complex 1 in translational control in plasticity of memory. And um, probably around, I'd say, 10 years ago, it was noted that a number of neurodevelopmental disorders are caused by mutations in genes that encode negative regulators of mTORC1 signaling. And so because of that, and because we studied mTORC1 signaling in normal plasticity memory, we began studying the role of dysregulated translational control in several of those disorders. In addition, we study dysregulated translational control in fragile X syndrome. Subsequently, we linked fragile X syndrome to altered mTORC1 signaling, but we originally were interested in fragile X syndrome mainly because it was an RNA binding protein that normally suppressed uh, translation of most of its target mRNAs. Could you ex describe quickly, just as a base level two, what, for, what fragile X syndrome is, uh, maybe how many people we know might be affected by it, and then let's also talk maybe about what is suppressed or enhanced in terms of protein translation in that disorder. Okay, so the fragile X syndrome is caused by too many CGG repeats in the 5' UTR of the FMR1 gene. This uh, causes uh, hypermethylation of that region and transcriptional silencing of the gene. The gene encodes for fragile X mental retardation protein, which, as I mentioned, is an mRNA binding protein that normally suppresses the translation of its targets. It has around, at least as of now, around 800 to 1,000 known targets. Um, and um, interestingly to us, a number of the targets are in the mTORC1 signaling pathway. So the idea is that there's suppression of the synthesis of those proteins normally, and without FMRP, some of them are upregulated, and hence you have upregulation of that pathway. So it seems that there are two core pathways uh, or two sets of proteins that are, I think, most relevant for autism spectrum disorder. One would be the mTORC1 pathway, and the other one is um, that FMRP suppresses the translation of a, a, a number of synaptic proteins. Okay, so having dysregulation of that is going to potentially lead to the uh, phenotypes. Right. So I think the I think for all of us the question in the field is uh, what exactly is dysregulated in fragile X syndrome, and are, are is everything upregulated or are some things downregulated? So I think most of the work that has been done uh, until more recently has looked at proteins on a candidate by candidate approach. Um, but now, well, there's with, so many of them. I, it's right. like, yeah. But now with proteomic techniques and and various um, manipulations of translational profiling that you can do, you can do a more of an unbiased screen to determine not only what is normally dysregulated in fragile X syndrome, but also what is rescued by various types of genetic and pharmacological manipulations. Okay, so it sounds like you said the mTOR pathway. Fragile X syndrome, for example, had a lot of dysregulatory functions in that pathway. So that's I can see the link there why you would why you would hunt there. What was the motivation, maybe like you said, ten years ago, to even look at that pathway? What was known about it being potentially a significant pathway? Well, that pathway has been intensely studied in non-rural systems for a long time, and we had studied it in the context 
of normal plasticity of memory as a, a key component of what's required to trigger de novo protein synthesis for, let's say, memory consolidation. Uh, the pathway, I think, became of interest to neuroscientists best based on human genetic studies showing that mutations in negative regulators of the cascade can give rise to a number of developmental disorders that have intellectual disability and autism associated with them. So I think things like tubular sclerosis complex, which is the most proximal of those, so meaning that mutations in TSC1 or TSC2 are just two steps upstream of mTORC1. Uh, we know that if you remove or mutate either one of those genes, you get upregulation of mTORC1 signaling. Okay, so, so these are human patients with... With tuberous sclerosis complex. I see, and they're trying to say, what are the potential factors that are causing this? Was it a convergence of, I guess, of a lot of different disorders? Suddenly, it seems like this was a very critical pathway. That's right. So we and uh, Ray Kelleher, Mark Baer, Mara Costamadioli, many of us have speculated that the dysregulation of this pathway may be something that's very common uh, this and also the ERK pathway, which also impinges on translation, might be common pathways that are dysregulated not only in these monogenic disorders, but also in the more idiopathic cases of ASD. We think it's possible that it's also impacted. Okay, we'll get there, and I want to get to some of the like what pieces to the puzzle that you've added to this understanding. But if you if you don't mind, let's go back and set also now a personal stage. Sort of, uh, okay. can you tell us where you grew up? Uh, maybe a little bit about your family, maybe what your parents did, and a little bit about the what got you interested in science in the first place. Uh, I grew up in uh, Butler, Pennsylvania, which is a steel town just north of Pittsburgh. My Mom was a nurse. My father was a steel worker, uh, as were many of my uncles and many of the other people in that region at that time. Yeah. Is that and still around? Like the, uh, it's not the same anymore. Not the same. <laughs> uh, there's very few people left working in the steel industry in Western Pennsylvania. I, it's, I was interested in, I wasn't actually all that interested in science when I was a younger kid. Uh, I did well in school, so I had a teacher who uh, in eighth grade when I was in Catholic school, she was actually a nun, who said, you know, you're really good at science. When you go to the intermediate high school next year, you should take the accelerated track, um, which I never, you know, ha had thought of and just did it, not because I was interested at that time, but because she said I would be bored <laughs> in classes <laughs> otherwise. Well, it's good for her. And so, uh, and ever since then, I, you know, I did well in science. I decided to be a science major in college. I was actually a chemistry major, but I was also pre-med. Um, I thought about perhaps going the medical school route, but working in a hospital for a couple of summers cured me of that notion. I really appreciate people that do that work, but it wasn't meant for uh, me to yeah. do. Uh, and so it's, it's funny, but I was a chemistry major, so I decided, well, I should do something in biochemistry because I thought chemistry was a little dry and not uh, a little boring. I thought biological processes would be more fun, but I thought since I was a chemistry major, biochemistry would be better. And it turned out I went to graduate school and I picked the department because it had a lot of kind of molecular biophysics and more chemistry type of people. 
And the irony is I ended up going to work with somebody who was a cell biologist <laughs> and, uh, and I, who studied nuclear proteins. And this was at the Medical College of Virginia, which is now the Medical School of Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond. And um, the protein that the nuclear protein that I studied happened to be enriched in the nervous system and it increased expression with development. And because of that, I spent a lot of time culturing cells in neuroscience labs. You know, there wasn't really neuroscience as a discipline back then. There were you know, neurochemists and psychologists. And so there was a neurochemist called George DeVries, who was actually pretty well known. He studied myelin and things like that. And uh, he, he basically um, uh, was a very enthusiastic guy. And so he, together with my PhD advisor, Keith Shelton, kind of encouraged me to go into neuroscience. So that's how I ended up in neuroscience. What was the motivation after college to go to graduate school? Did you do that immediately after? Well, um, I thought that I wanted to do something uh, to get an advanced degree. And once I decided uh, that I wasn't going to go to medical school, it made sense to go into science. I didn't actually have a particular question that I was interested in. I think uh, probably many of the people that you have interviewed would tell you that the interviewing process is a lot different. You just applied to schools, and most of the time you didn't yeah. even get interviewed. They would just accept you or not accept you. And no, that's a lot of people say they use the wording, I wound up in a lab doing this thing, and it was like, oh, cool. Like, that's mm-hmm. lucky. I guess, you know, some people fell into sort of a great fit but was it was a lot different. You just you would apply to the school, and then they would yeah. And then we did rotations, and I ended okay. up working with you know on the thing I was most interested in. And I can remember my, Keith Sheldon, my my PhD advisor, telling me, you know, when you decide to do your postdoc, you need to figure out what's the most interesting thing to you because that's what you're going to work on for a while. Mm-hmm. And so at that time, I started. I was reading. Papers mainly from Eric Kandel's lab on, and I thought since I was a molecular person, I wanted to do something related to memory because I thought that was the most interesting thing I could work on. And since I was kind of on the molecular end of things, I thought somebody like Kandel's lab would be the place to do something like that. And remember back then, there were only a few systems where you could study the molecular basis of memory, and aplesia was one of them. Yeah, And I wasn't even aware of work in the hippocampus at that time. And so I met uh, David Sweat at a meeting. He was a postdoc in Kandel's lab and was setting up his own lab at Baylor College of Medicine. And um, he convinced me to come uh, and do a, a PhD in Houston or a postdoc in Houston uh, in his lab. And the irony is I thought I was going to go work on aplesia. And the irony is Dave was looking at ways to identify newly synthesized proteins in, in aplesia using what would now be considered ancient proteomic techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that might be what we work on. But he said, you know, I think I'm going to work in the hippocampus and I want to study this phenomenon taught, um, called long-term potentiation. And no one's doing any kind of signaling in this field. They're all doing pharmacology. Uh, so we're going to directly measure kinases and signaling. And that, that's something I was, um, that I had done some, uh, as a graduate student. So uh, that sounded good. And I, mm-hmm. uh, went to Baylor to do that. My wife is still bitter about this because one of our other options was go to, was to go to UC Irvine. And so. <laughs> 
Was she it? envisioned volleyball on the beach surfing. and uh, surfing. And uh, I, uh, we had just decided to get married, and she was going to do her PhD. So instead of doing it at Irvine, she did it in Houston. So when Dan introduced me today that's why i mentioned amy because he had the dinner at her house to convince her that we should come to houston <laughs> really that's it was true more of that. okay and to this day anytime i go to southern that's california funny. my wife will say you and david sweat robbed me of my southern yeah. california days you're like now we can do it you can go when you want have fun you can ask her if you were to interview her she would tell you the same would, thing. oh man that's funny <laughs> Did you guys meet in graduate school or was it? I was a uh, graduate student and she was the summer undergraduate student working in a lab up the hall. Nice. Oh, cool. <laughs> Did you just see her down the hallway and was like, hmm, I think we saw each other and yeah. <laughs> uh, made the connection. Cool. Well, that's awesome. So did she start working there too at Baylor? She did her PhD in microbiology at Baylor while I was doing my postdoc there. Would you mind doing a quick talk about what it's like having two science, like two people working in science together? <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, yeah, it's not easy. Uh, my so when my first faculty job interviews came up, we had to of course think about where Amy's my wife's name, where she could do her postdoc. We ended up going to the University of Pittsburgh. She did a postdoc, got her own fellowships, etc. But during that time, she decided that. She didn't want to have both of us have the pressure of getting grants and not being flexible with our ability to move if we wanted to move. So she ended up uh, becoming a scientific advisor at a law firm and then a patent agent. And eventually when we moved back to Houston, she went to law school at night at the University of Houston and became a, a lawyer, which she is to this day, a biotech patent attorney. Cool. Yeah, that's a tough, I know, basically... The lifestyle can be hard, and I know lots of people that do it, but the system that's set up right now is a little difficult to navigate when two people are career-oriented and trying to uh, find the right spot to be together, you know? <laughs> right. But, okay, let's do a little bit about, like, the work that you do with David. So at, at that time, right, this is when it was very in vogue to be looking at learning. LTP, long-term potentiation, was the hot topic, I'm sure, at that that's time. Right. And so people were looking at what are the... Where's the site of this plasticity that's happening? What are the inputs and outputs that cause it? But you were saying that at the time, there was not that many people looking at the molecules that underlie that. So, so at the time, there were two papers that um, were published that kind of drove our work. The first was a paper by Roberto Malino and Dick Chen and showing that pharmacologically, if you block kinases, it would block the expression of LTP. And so... Um, the idea was that there was persistent kinase activation that was underlying uh, LTP. And then subsequently, Robert Malenka, Rob Malenka and, and Roger Nicole published another paper showing that it looked like postsynaptic um, kinases were required for LTP. So what we wanted to do, because we were biochemists, was to actually de directly demonstrate using enzymatic assays that after you induced LTP in a slice that there was actually persistent kinase activation. And so the work that we did back then, which we were able to demonstrate, kind of laid the groundwork for all the work that um, subsequently we was done on PKM zeta, et cetera. I see. So those are all that all, all that kind of work arose out of those very early studies looking for ways in which um, synapses could be persistently modulated. 
Okay. And this underlies then, this is the de facto hypothesis of how a memory would, would be stabilized. That Right. 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 The idea would be you have a transient signal and somehow it has to be converted into a more persistent signal. Yeah. And I think it's still a fascinating question as, a, as somebody that thinks about um, signaling mechanisms that, you know, memories can last a lifetime. Most people think that these things are main memories are maintained at synapses. But if you think of it as a biochemist, you have to account for the fact that all the protein in your brain probably turns over once a month. So even in the face of that turnover, that synaptic modification has to be kept in place. And I think to this day, we still, you know, there's a lot of candidates like PKM Zeta and some other ones, but they're these kind of persistent biochemical loops that can maintain a strengthened synapse um, for a lifetime are still uh, not clear. Yeah. Um- Let's move to the maybe the next type of uh, the next step in your career. Mm-hmm. After that, you started up the lab where I was in a department of neuroscience at the University of Pittsburgh. Okay, I was there for uh, seven years. What was the thought process? I guess at that time, what were you, when you when you got the job and you're starting? What was the what was it's what uh, feeling the most exciting and terrifying thing you can do in your uh, professional life? Now you have wings and they're you get of- a you have an account that has money in it. And you have a lab that has nothing in it and nobody in it, and you got to make it happen. So did you walk in? <laughs> do you do you do like a I don't know maybe like an athlete that goes and you see the court and you're envisioning you just open the lab you see this empty lab and you're envisioning someday it'll be filled. With, Absolutely, with and uh, and you learn very rapidly that what you're trained to do really has little to do with what you're going to have to do in order to to be good at your new job. Which is what? Well, you know, you have to have ideas, which is good, which you, uh, hopefully you've learned how to think and uh, address interesting questions as a, as a postdoc. But there's more to running a lab than just being able to design and do experiments. You have to manage personnel. You have to figure out um, the right people to hire and how they're going to interact with each other. You have to manage budgets. Most of the time, people have to at least do a little bit of teaching you know, postdocs, uh, I think nowadays graduate students and postdocs are much better prepared for these things than I think we were in our day where we just worked as postdocs. And when you're a postdoc, you're kind of the forgotten person. No one pays attention to you. There was no program for you. You work in your lab, you do your experiments, you write your papers. Yeah. And you then have to do run a lab and no one really... Um, trained you how to do that at that yeah. time. I mean, I had, I had a great advisor, mentor, and, and best friend in David Sweat who did those things for me, but I know a lot of people didn't yeah. didn't train them and prepare them for um, some of the things that they would have to deal with when they became a new PI. Yeah. Well, I guess maybe if you have students or undergraduates in the lab that you're, that you're kind of mentoring at the time as a postdoc. But besides that, there's probably a lot of time where that doesn't happen. Right. So now it's like, well, that's like letting the bird fly. You right. have to learn a lot of that probably just as you're falling. Right. What did you want to do? Maybe where did you want to take the lab at that point? Uh, what was it? It was scary. I'm terrifying. I'm sure too. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, the first thing is, and this is a thing I think all, this is holds true to this day, postdocs 
the one thing you do is you do you follow on more or less to what you've been doing because otherwise no one would ever give you money to do something completely new. Yeah. So you have to be able to demonstrate that you're productive and able to do uh, something, and that's usually based on what you did your postdoc on. So I continued studying uh, persistent kinase activation. I did a lot of work on redox signaling, but I also started working on Instead of LTP, I started working on LTD and phosphatase signaling and eventually made the change from rats to mice because of all the um, technology that was coming online at the time to make uh, and study uh, genetically modified mice. Okay, cool. Let's now, like, maybe we can jump to sort of the modern day and sure. what your, um, what kinds of things to these pathways have you discovered recently? Um, we, we, we sort of started talking about this, uh, early on, but when we talked about that mTOR pathway, could you tell us maybe some of the stories involved in that pathway and what you guys are sort of yeah, adding to that puzzle? Yeah, I think that, uh, the thing that, um, I think has surprised us is that, um, depending on the type of plasticity or the type of memory process that that very specific downstream effectors of the mTORC1 pathway will specifically regulate a process so it's not um and it's not all always the same so EIF4E is involved in uh, consolidation and also reconsolidation, but while it's sufficient for consolidation of memory, it's not sufficient in and of itself for reconsolidation of memory. SX kinase 1 doesn't appear to be required for consolidation of um, memory, but it does appear to be required uh, along with the IF4E for reconsolidation of memory. So we've, we've done this, and I think you know, we're also involved in the same types of pathways and how they're involved in other types of memory, like like extinction memory. And um, I think the rules there are also likely to be a little different. And um, I think the reason we're interested in the the what I call the minutia of translation control is because it's one of the things that will dictate what messages end up being translated. So you know, what the output of the uh, ribosome is with respect to the newly synthesized proteins depends on many things. And one of them are these particular pathways, but other things that um, depends on are, of course, the messages, where they're localized, the actual structure in the messages. So the the uncoding, the non-coding regions in the five prime and the in the three prime UTR of a message also will kind of dictate what type of translational control might be used. Uh, so I think there's there's many things that we don't know yet about how all these things um, are connected in order to regulate the proper translation of messages that support long-lasting um, changes in neural function and, and for things like memory. Yeah, to get into the, the nitty-gritty of this too, these molecular pathways, like where we stand right now in 2015, you put a picture up, this slide of just that pathway 
it's it's almost terrifying you see it and then there are hundreds of arrows coming out of it and this is the knowledge that we have at this moment in terms of how this one pathway what interacts with it what upregulates downregulates it and then it, all of its effectors and it's even like incredibly daunting right now and is the is the goal like in a hundred years or something in the, in the sort of the fantasy world? At some point, we would have we would have a complete map of every single biochemical effector that inputs and outputs to that thing, right. and then because each one of those presumably also might have slightly different effects. Like you were saying, one might affect one type of behavior, another pathway slightly more of that would uh, cause a, d a different kind of functions. I think that, um, I, I, to be honest, I think that the way that we do these types of studies now will be um, considered quaint in a few years um, because there will, I think there will be ways in which we can look at a whole pathway uh, in an individual cell and how that pathway is regulated in response to a particular stimulus. And you'll get a a much broader picture of how the whole pathway is changed in response to that. And so that's going to take, I think, a new breed of what I would call a molecular neuroscientist that understands not only um, synaptic function, signal transduction, but also has to understand new technologies to, to look for big, to look for changes across all components of the pathways you described, and then bioinformatic approaches as well as modeling approaches to predict when you perturb one component of that what would happen. Mm -hmm. So I think the way that we do it now where we perturb one component and then look for the downstream effect, we won't do that. You'll do this, um, you'll be able to predict what would happen uh, for the outcome and then actually test that prediction. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, much like people do for computational models of, of circuits, let's say. Yeah. And the, the, the problem, right? I guess that these molecules are, we, some of them, we know the structure, but we don't know how they interact with one another. Or even if we found all, like you said, it was only recently found, right? All the, um, downstream targets of that one, uh, the, like the fragile X gene itself. So now we have to figure out, okay, how is it? How are each of those? Which one of those are the most important ones? And what's their impact, right? Yeah. So there's primary effects, tertiary, uh, yeah. Uh, or secondary effects and tertiary effects and yeah. trying to understand that I think is going to take a different way of thinking about this and doing this on a more what I would call cellular systems level than what we've applied um, before. Yeah. So you, I think yeah. that's why I think wh why um, transcriptomics, translatomics, proteomics, lipidomics, metabolomics, <laughs> all of these things are becoming much more uh, readily used and at some point though I think you'll people are already starting to be able we can do already transcriptomics and translatomics in single cells and before long you'll be able to do proteomics mm -hmm. in single cells uh, not to come off as like too dumb but I the the ways in which I could imagine a computer you know churning all that data can maybe spit out some results but how as a human how do we take all that information and then like turn it into a story or something that like makes somewhat sense well that's why I, mean? I think that we're gonna have new breeds of, of <laughs> scientists robots in the well <laughs> no I think that no I think um, big data science is is a is uh, is something that every aspect uh, of science and society has to deal with. And I think you have to be able to utilize it to your advantage. Yeah. And I think it's going to take some time for all of us to be trained on how to 
analyze big data sets and get information out of them and then to make good predictions and do good experiments. And I think it, I think the utilization of these data sets will make you be able to do much more focused experiments that are meaningful. Yeah, or speed up the process yes. to figure out where you're going next. Because that's right. That was a like you said. There's all these you know manipulating one little thing. You suddenly realize I'm like I'm ignoring tons of things. So, but if I had all that data simultaneously, maybe that would give me right. A, better understanding of what's the most important to That's work. right. Because it seems like, I, I, I mean, even today, pharmacology, a lot of ways in which we treat cancers and things, they're usually, you know, one, you're, you're doing a very targeted one, maybe two or three. But I would say cancer yeah. biology is way ahead of neuroscience. They're leading the way for the type of analysis I'm talking about at yeah. the cellular level. And understanding that um, cancers are called, caused often by specific types of mutations. So already we know um, you know, for specific types of breast cancers, it's caused by this type of mutation. And if you have that type of mutation, then we're going to treat you with this drug, but not if you have a different type of cancer, right? So I think as we understand more about the genetics of neurological disorders, both neurodegenerative and neuropsychiatric disorders, that we will be able to take the same type of approach. Yeah. We'll be smarter about, uh, about it than we are now. Good, cool. Would we be able to just also maybe talk about, do you have any passions or hobbies or things that you do outside of when you're not thinking about science? Uh, I was was once an athlete, but I, I, as Dan mentioned in my talk, I played a lot of basketball. I played in, in, in college even, and uh, uh, but I stopped playing basketball when I was in my 30s, but I still run. Is that in Virginia? Uh, no, I played oh, basketball sorry, in, in Pennsylvania. Okay, okay. Uh, and, um, but I, I, I played until my late thirties, um, pretty regularly. Do you still yeah. watch the NCAA then? I'm, I still, I, NBA, you know, I don't yeah. have as much time to watch sports, but I, but I still like basketball, but I'm probably most passionate about the Pittsburgh Steelers as a sports oh, no. fan, Nice, <laughs> <laughs> but Penguins? I like art. I like no. music. I like the Penguins and the Pirates, yeah. but, um, you know, as a, any Pittsburgher would tell you, they're most passionate about the Steelers. Yeah. You have an artistic to, uh. Uh, I would say I'm not that artistic, but I sure appreciate, appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, we we take advantage of living in New York and go to a lot of live music, both rock type of shows, uh, singer songwriter type of things, as well as symphony, opera, and anything. Oh, awesome! Broadway musicals. In Austin, plays. Texas, we take I take huge advantage of that as yeah. well. <laughs> in New York, you can see anybody at any time. Yeah. And so we we try to take advantage of that uh, as much awesome. as we can. Well, Eric, thank you so much for talking to us today. Okay. Appreciate it. Thanks. information about our guest and the science we talked about, head on over to our website, brainpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, you can let us know by leaving us a review on iTunes, and you can also follow us on Facebook and at Brain Podcast on Twitter. The intro transition music you heard was a piece I recorded sampling Mark Mulcahy, and you're currently listening to Golden Living Room. See you next time.